You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Susie Finkbeiner is the CBA bestselling author of The All-American, The Nature of Small Birds, All Manner of Things, which was selected as a 2020 Michigan notable book, and Stories That Bind Us, as well as A Cup of Dust, A Trail of Crumbs, and A Song of Home. She serves on the Fiction Readers Summit Planning Committee, volunteers her time at Ada Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and speaks at retreats and women's events across the country. Susie and her husband have three children and live in West Michigan. Susie, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, we are too. We are really looking forward to uh, talking about this book. But before we get to that, let's start with something fun. What is your favorite thing about the place where you live and why? See, this is a hard question for me to answer because I love so much about Michigan. I'm a lifelong Michigander and I love that it's it's part wild and part civilized and um, the mix of that. We have such great places to get outside. Lake Michigan is one of my favorite. So most of what I really love the most is just being outside and enjoying what the state has to offer. That is so cool. I mean, I was born and raised in the South, so the thought of like that much snow and intense cold <laughs> is intimidating. But being next to Lake Michigan, now that sounds pretty cool because I love kind of wild water on, on a shore. Yeah, and it, it's extremely wild and um, it's, it's not safe. Um, <laughs> it's, it's pretty much like an ocean, but One of the things that is interesting is that the lake where I live, it makes us have more snow than other parts a little bit more east of us. So it's beautiful, but it's hard to drive for me. Mm. (laughs) I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. Well, if you love the outdoors, you'll love being here in Oregon. I saw that you are going to be at the Cascades Christian Writers Summer Conference, mm-hmm. and um, we're actually having that at a retreat. I'm part of Oregon Christian Writers, and I'll be there as well. So I'm it'll so be wonderful. <laughs> it'll be good to meet you in person. You too. But yes, we we love the the outdoors. We have so much for hiking and mountains and oceans, and it's just mm. a lot of fun. I am planning to bring some hiking shoes with me. Oh, very good. Yes, absolutely. While you're there, any chance to get out in nature, it's just good for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a big bird nerd. So. (laughs) Oh, that's good. We have lots of birds. Yeah. I'm hoping to see some birds I don't usually see. Yes. Yes. I love that the United States is so big. You know, we have so many different ecosystems and it's cool. It is so cool. It's so exciting. Susie, as a mother of three, no doubt you've received a lot of parenting (laughs) advice over the years, whether you asked for it or not. What would you say is the best piece of advice you ever received or or the worst, whichever? (laughs) Well, you know, I think um, I'm going to go positive with the best. I I remember years ago, uh, my husband and I have talked about this. I remember someone saying, who was further along in the parenting game than I was at the time, 
But this friend said that raising teens doesn't have to be horrible. Like it can be good. It can be really good. It's a lot of what you put into it and, um, and just to enjoy every stage that the kids go through. And my kids are all teens now and my husband and I are enjoying this time. This is a really good time in parenting for us. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So, you know, I just think that parents that are further along the road, it's it's good to to pass on those positives about, you know, teenagers aren't scary. Yeah, I agree. And I remember my mother-in-law saying, which was a piece of advice her mother actually said, was that there are different stages in, in your child's life. And she said, make sure that whichever stage you're in, to find something you really like because parenting is hard. And I loved that focus on the positive. And then I I do find myself, even though I teach elementary school and you couldn't pay me to go to middle school or high school. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm just, my husband was a youth leader and he's great at that. And and I am like, I am, I just, I understand smaller children. I, I understand that teens confuse me and overwhelm me. <laughs> but my own children, since I have, my youngest is turning 13 next month. And then I have a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old. Like mm. the stages they're in, we have some challenges. There are some things they're still learning, but it is yeah. just great. It is just great. And so neat to see the people they are right now. And just, I'm just so proud of them. Oh, yes. I, I am with you on that. Mm -hmm. uh, I really appreciate that because, you know, growing up, I feel like I would, I heard a lot of parents talking about oh, wait till your kids get to teens, you know, talking to my parents. And then, you know, we got there and they're like, oh, you've got teenagers. Oh, you poor souls. You know, and I was like, we're really not all that bad. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that it's just, it's so much of the attitude you have going into something in, in so many different ways. But like, how can you complain about kids that can feed themselves? <laughs> <laughs> True. I was happy to be out of the diaper stage. Oh, yeah. Oh, gee. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're doing great. Yeah, good. Oh, yeah. Well, three of your earlier books focus on the swing era and the Great Depression. And then your latest novels are focusing on the decades after World War II. So kind of conspicuously skipping World War II there. But <laughs> what drew you to write fiction set in the 50s and 60s specifically? Well, you know, I, I am so intrigued by the post-World War II era. I think that it's an idealized time in history, in American history, but there's so much else to it. There's a lot of complexity to it. There's a lot that happened that was not great. And um, and a lot of little pieces of history to, to draw from. And I, I think one thing that I'm particularly drawn to is just that this was my, my parents' childhood, their teenage years, their coming of age years. And I'm just so interested in the world they grew up in. And it, it's helping me to understand them better just diving into all of the world events that they lived through and the vast change between the early 1950s and the late 60s. There was seismic change as far as culture and family life and everything like that. So that's just so intriguing to me. Yeah, it's always so interesting to dive into history and then to, mm -hmm. but to like try and just narrow it down to see what everyday life would, would have been like for our citizens. Mm -hmm. And especially like you say, the post-World War mm -hmm. era, because it's 
it can be easy to focus on, you know, all of the insane things happening around the world in, you know, the early 1940s. And also, you know, with World War One and other things like that, I feel like our study of history is just kind of punctuated by we focus on the wars. But like you say, there's these time between that are quiet in comparison. But like you say, as far as culture, those 20 years of the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. was just so much shift. Oh, enormous. The Korean War also intrigues me, even though I, I haven't written much about that, just because it, it is often forgotten. It was kind of a silent war. And the Korean War just led right into the Vietnam War. And the Vietnam War started way earlier than we often think. And so it's just, there's so much, so much interest in that. And I really love the music of the 60s. <laughs> so yes. that doesn't hurt. And as far as research goes, it's so accessible to find primary resources because number one, people are still alive and they want to talk about it. And I can watch I Love Lucy and say it's research. And that's not, that doesn't make me sad. <laughs> like, absolutely. That is something that's really, really cool about researching that time period. Yeah. So many primary sources and so well documented. Oh, for sure. I do not know how someone writes something set in the, in the 1500s. Like the, the research for that just, that gives me a headache just thinking about how hard that must be. <laughs> a lot of research and a lot of imagination. <laughs> yep. So Susie, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Oh, you know, this is this is an interesting question. Um, so often we do get the same questions in interviews. And so this is a really interesting one to to really contemplate. While I was writing this book, I I experienced a pretty significant burnout. And I I've never experienced writer's block before. And in fact, I didn't believe in it necessarily, but with this book, it was it was extremely difficult and Unfortunately, I work with with people who are very understanding of such things. And so they were they gave me the gift of time to finish this novel. And I think that it just it made me realize that this, you know, go 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 kind of mentality that we have not just in publishing but in life, it's not necessarily good for us. And so sometimes I need to remind myself how important rest is and how important it is to let my mind kind of chill out. (laughs) And I just think that it's so counter to, to our culture to slow it down a little bit. But that's, that's something that I'll always remember while writing this novel. It was such a, a big thing that was going on with me personally, and just needing to be still and just listen. I honestly don't think we can hear that too much because like you say, in our culture, we are just, you know, programmed to run from the minute our alarm goes off in the morning mm-hmm. till pushing till the very last minute before we fall into bed. You know, there's such a expectation to just keep moving, keep doing and cram as much as possible into those waking hours. Mm-hmm. But we weren't really designed to to run like a machine. You know, you don't just oil the parts and let it keep running. It has to stop from time to time and just just chill a little bit. So, mm-hmm. and it is interesting how our God designed our minds and bodies that if we don't give them rest, they will make us rest eventually. Like, like with your writing. Yeah. And I, you know, having the extra time allowed me to write a novel that I felt 
the characters in the stories deserved. And it's like this concept of Sabbath, and we just aren't good at it. Just giving ourselves time to breathe. It wasn't given to us as something to force us to do something. It was a give, given to us as a gift. And mm-hmm. we need to see it that way. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and dive into talking some more about your latest release, The All-American. 16-year-old Bertha Harding is not like other girls. She isn't interested in getting married, having babies, and being a homemaker. She is far more interested in joining the neighborhood boys in a fast-paced game of baseball. Her 11-year-old sister Flossie, on the other hand, wants nothing more than to fit in with the girls in her class. But try as she might, she can't seem to make a single friend other than those she finds in her books. It's in those books that she finds hope for her own happily ever after. But every life has a few strikes against it. When their father is accused of being part of the Communist Party, life comes crashing down around them. It is clear they can no longer stay in their home where rumors of the Harding family run rampant. They escape to the small town of Bear Run, Michigan. It's there where Bertha grows even more determined to play for the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, even trying out for the Workington Sweet Peas. And it's in Bear Run where Flossie learns to be a friend and to find the good in everything. Join author Finkbeiner on an exciting journey you will never forget in The All-American. Wow. So there's a part of the 1950s we seldom focus on, and that's the craze of eradicating communism at home. And not much could turn these sisters' worlds upside down faster than their father getting such an accusation. Actually, if we look in history, Lucille Ball from I Love Lucy was accused of being a communist in 1953. Her daughter later said that she was just terrified by this. And at the time, people who were being accused, they were ostracized and even attacked. And that same year, Lucy was accused, uh, was the same that the communist couple, the Rosenbergs, were executed. Now, Lucy was actually cleared by the former FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover. He publicly cleared her. And so she and her family kind of dodged that. But I watched a documentary on it and it just completely rattled her world. Uh So this accusation, it's no small thing. And it would have posed a great threat to the Harding family in your story. Could you tell us? A little more about this little-known fact of American history and how it ties into your story? Sure. I had heard about it before. Being a history nut, I'd read about it in years past. And John Steinbeck is one of the authors that I've always admired. And he had quite a large file on him at the FBI. But I hadn't thought about how it related to Michigan. Because often we would hear about the blacklist in Hollywood about people being accused in New York and in California and the bigger cities. But I was reading a book called A Good American Family by David Marinus, in which he writes about how his father, who was a newspaper man in Detroit, was accused during the 1952 Red Scare of Michigan, in which a woman named Mrs. Bernice Baldwin She had infiltrated the Communist Party of Michigan for nine years, and she was just naming so many people and claiming that they were in league with the Communist Party. And I just really was interested in seeing how that pertained to Michigan. And in The All-American, Flossie and Bertha's father is actually an author, 
And so he has more of a public life and had written some things, you know, in critique of, of the United States, which some people don't necessarily like all the time. And so he is named by a neighbor. In this story, it's more of a case of the neighbor was accused and was told, if you name other people, it'll be easier for you legally. And so this happened often where people would just accuse, they would just make a list of names just to make their lives easier. So that's how it incorporates into the story. And we do see, like like you were saying with Lucille Ball, how this uprooted people and it changed their lives and not usually for the better. And it was a scary time because anyone could accuse someone. And it was especially a big deal in Detroit because of the auto industry and the unions here and the connection that people would make between the unions and communism. And so that's why there was especially powerful movement in the Detroit area and even in Lansing, which is where I grew up. So it was it was really interesting to hear that too, to read about that. That is cool because like you said, we hear about it in New York and yeah, especially in Hollywood because they were some big names that that got into the limelight, but we don't necessarily realize that yes, this was countrywide. And so there would have been, you know, just ordinary people whose lives would have been affected. And also with it being such a trigger, there was always the case of that, you know, if your neighbor got mad at you because you accidentally backed over their fence, you know, then they could throw this out there and whether or not it could be substantiated, it was still such a strong accusation that it could blacken your name. So that's that's kind of cool to bring it down to like the personal level and like what it would have just been like for everyday people living with this. Yeah, thank you. So Bertha is determined to join the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Yeah, baseball, not softball. So that's right. <laughs> can you tell us a little about how this league started and the role that it was playing in the 1950s? Sure. In the 1940s, the um, because World War II was going on, there were less men to play in the major leagues for baseball. And so Mr. Wrigley of Wrigley Field, he, he had this idea of, you know, having a girls league and having that kind of be a home front morale boost for people here in the United States. And so they held auditions and that's the movie, A League of Their Own. That's the beginning of the league in 1943. And these girls kept playing and they played even after the, the men came home. Some of these women were so good that major league men's teams were thinking about recruiting them to play oh, with the wow. guys. Yeah. <laughs> but the few that, that they wanted to recruit, they were like, no, I love my team. I'm staying with my team. Even though they could have made way more money. The league went until 1954 and that only ended because the interest for it was diminished, unfortunately. Ah, yeah, I know, I know. But the stories from these women were just fascinating. Hearing about how they went from playing on the street, like stickball in the street, or playing at an old dugout in the neighborhood with all boys. And some of them, the first time they ever played ball with another female was on these fields with the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. And I just, there's something in me that just relates to growing up and being around a lot of boys mm -hmm. and 
And I was talking to my daughter the other day that I often liked being the only girl. You know, there was something special about that. Mm -hmm. But um, just these women were spunky. They were strong. They were vulnerable. They were young. And and just like you hear the, you know, Ginger Rogers had to do everything Fred Astaire did except backwards and heels. These women, they had to play as well as the men, but wearing a short skirt and lipstick. (laughs) Yes, because Mm -hmm. I remember reading about when they started and it was like, yeah, they had to be girls of good character and they had to be preserving the 1940s feminine ideal, Mm -hmm. you know, as part of keeping up the morale and everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what are you working on next? I am currently working on a novella to be in a collection with Kriegel Publications. And I have the great pleasure of working alongside Rachel Scott McDaniel and Allison Pittman on this collection. So that's that's fun and it's something very different for me. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. Oh, that's awesome. I love novella collections because you pick it up for one author and then you get introduced to like two or three more mm-hmm. that you discover you're going to love. So that's so much fun. I think so too. And these two ladies are just the sweetest. I just really love them. Yeah, they're just awesome. I love how uh, the plot has to be packed in there and you still have to have so much emotional engagement. It's shorter. I don't know about you and I don't know about our listeners, but I um, I work full time and I have a second job and I just, for me to be able to sit down and read something, either it has to be audio so I don't have to sit down or I'm reading more novellas. I just am. <laughs> I don't think you're alone. I think that they're they're really spiking in popularity for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. So, they're a lot of fun though. I'm excited. I'm excited to see that one when it comes out. My friend Car- Crystal Cadill is doing a Christmas oh. novella with a couple of authors from Kriegel as well, and um I'm excited for that one too. So, very cool. And for our listeners, Susie is offering a copy of The All-American. To enter to win, just go to our website, historicalbookroom.com, and you can click on the giveaways page. I'll also have a direct link to that giveaway in the show notes for this episode. And Susie, how can our listeners connect with you? I love connecting with readers online. My Facebook page is a fantastic way. We um, talk about books that we're reading. We talk about life and all kinds of things like that. So just look up author Susie Finkbeiner and you will find me. I'm on Instagram and that's always a fun one. So those are good ways. And then always susiefinkbeiner.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. I have really enjoyed discussing this bit of history with you. So looking forward to this book coming out. This this was such a fun interview. Thank you for having me. Now for a pinch of the past. Hello, welcome to today's pinch of the past. Unfortunately, Darcy will not be joining me today. However, we are going to have a fun time chatting about a popular fashion trend, particularly in the 1960s, 70s, and even the early 80s, which were the sequins. While popular girl group The Supremes especially made a hit with the sequences, we actually find their history much further back. Garments in ancient times had coins sewn into them to keep the wealth safe and close to the wearer. And according to threads.com, sequin 
originated from the Arabic word sika, meaning coin, later becoming the Venetian word vecino. Now, in the late 16th century, it morphed into the French word of sequin. Fast forward to the 20th century, when Egyptomania flooded the West, King Tut's tomb was entered and they found garments embellished with hundreds of tiny gold plates. From there, the flapper gowns used this fancy embellishment as well, resulting in a heavy dress with tiny round metal sequins on them. Now, by the 1930s, lightweight, colorful sequences had been created. These were, however, highly impractical because having been made out of a certain gelatin, they were often known to melt in heat as low as body temperature. They also dissolved in water, which made cleaning them just nearly impossible. Not very practical fashion, no matter how beautiful they were. (laughs) So finally, scientist Herbert Lieberman, while working on the Eastman Kodak film set, invented acetate sequins. At the time, Kodak was producing acetate for their film stock, and Lieberman used the clear plastic to make these round sequins. He placed them on one side with silver metal actually painted on and then color on the opposite side so that when light would penetrate through the colored side, it would hit the silver and bounce back through the color again, creating a beautiful glittering effect. Now, while acetate sequins could be brittle and they often cracked they were far more practical and versatile than the gelatin or metal sequence. Lieberman, who had a full career creating costumes for circuses, bands, dancers, and such, he went on to perfect the sequence, eventually opening factories which produced thousands of dresses per day. So there's a little about the history of sequence. You also have certain icons such as Marilyn Monroe and her red sequence dress that she wore in the movie Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And then the 1960s American Girl Group, as I mentioned earlier, the Supremes wore splendid sequence dresses. So the next time you admire a flapper dress, just remember how fortunate we are to have the lovely sequences we have now that don't melt when you wear them. Time for our bookworm review. Alice runs a New Orleans flower shop alongside her aunt, but thoughts of her mother, who went missing during Hurricane Katrina, are never far from her mind. After getting off on the wrong foot with a handsome yet irritating man who comes to her shop, Alice soon realizes their worlds overlap, and the answers they both seek can be found in the same place. In 1861, Charleston, Clara is known to be a rule follower, but the war has changed her. Unbeknownst to her father, who is heavily involved with the Confederacy, she is an abolitionist and is prepared to sacrifice everything for the cause. With assistance from a dashing Union spy, she attempts to help an enslaved woman reunite with her daughter. But things go very wrong when Clara agrees to aid the Northern cause by ferrying secret information about her father's associates. 
Faced with the unknown, both women will have to dig deep to let their courage bloom. Hello, dearies. This is Angela Bell, bringing you today's Bookworm Review. You can connect with me on my website, authorangelabell.com. In 2021, I discovered the Heirloom Secret series and fell in love with Ashley Clark's writing. Her stories ministered to my heart in a way I hadn't experienced with a series before, and her characters stayed with me long after I turned the final page. Both The Dress Shop on King Street and Paint and Nectar made it onto my favorite reads of 2021 list, so needless to say, I had high expectations going into book three. As a reader, there's nothing quite so disappointing as falling in love with a series only to have the final book fall flat. Dear reader, I'm ever so pleased to report that Ashley Clark stuck the landing. Where the Last Rose Blooms is everything I'd hoped it would be. Poignant, beautiful, with the warmth and southern charm of my granny's hand-stitched quilt. Clark's pacing is masterful, perfectly balancing intense scenes with moments of levity. Once again, she's created a diverse cast of characters and tackled relatable issues with authenticity and respect. I could see myself in Lucy's battle with anxiety, depression, and grief. I could feel her pain, and more importantly, I could feel my hopes rising as Lucy found new hope in the midst of pain. God spoke to me through the pages of this book. He used the story to help me see my own in a new way and left me with comforting truths to ponder long after the end. Ashley Clark's Heirloom Secret series is one I will treasure and gush about for years to come, one I will read again when I need my hope restored or simply want to visit some old friends. If you're new to Christian fiction, read this series. If you've been reading Christian fiction since Love Came Softly, read this series. If you've never read Christian fiction or have a negative impression of the genre, please read this series. It is not one to be missed. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com. 